Hello, I'm your host Mpoma Zipa, curator of the African Mobilities podcast series. In this keynote episode on Prototypes, Volume 2, Sami Baloji and I will discuss his work on colonialism, extraction, and environmental precarity. Sami Baloji is an award-winning visual artist and photographer, as well as co-founder of Piche Encounters, a photography and video biennale in Lubumbashi. Baloji's work explores the tensions inherent in the operations of colonial power within the mineral-rich Katanga province of the Democratic Republic of Congo. His work operates as a critical archive of the cultural, architectural, and industrial heritage of the Katanga region, as well as a questioning of the effects of neo-colonial power. Baloji has featured in numerous international exhibitions, including the Venice Biennale and the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art, and he's also been the recipient of numerous prestigious art awards. We discussed today the interconnectedness of planetary deterioration and African material futures while working through and beyond the colonial archive under the rubric of extraction. Hello, Sammy. Thank you so much for um, being here for the African Mobilities podcast series and for agreeing to be our keynote speaker. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I'm honored to be part of uh, this conversation. I started out by asking Sammy about the relationship between creative practice and research. It was quite obvious for me that if I wanted to express myself on the artistical level, I had also to have a, a sort of a background of documentation or even like more information about, about the country and even the city where I was born. Just because, as I said, as um, we talked in the last conversation, one of the things is that I went to school in Lubumbashi and I never learned about the colonial history uh, or even the colonial occupation. So at the same time, the, the city uh, as we, we have it today and even the country, they are all concepts, but, but even spaces that have been created by the colonial uh, system. And the reason that we didn't learn it at school, it, it's uh, also a part of collective amnesia, which can be also explained by all the dictatorial uh, regime that we had, but also the wars that uh, came around the country. For me, research appears as a, a tool that can actually present not only the context where the context of the country, but it's also a sort of background which helps me or, or my artistic practice to find a way from a uh, really personal uh, perspective. So it's between the research and personal experience in those areas, I would say. So, Sammy, your essay on urban planning, which you produced in 2013, raises an interesting question about the relationship between urban planning and colonial power. How does this juxtaposition of urban fragmentation with fly specimens help us understand colonial spatial logics? When I started to work for the French Cultural Center in Lubumbashi as a young photographer, one of the missions that I had was to document the colonial architecture in a way. So this is where I started also to collaborate with Finistorian in the colonial architecture. And from there, I started really 
to realize how those those buildings uh, or, or even the architecture were really thought, uh, but also created uh, in, in terms of in order to respond to the idea of building this country or, or even the city for for whites, but. In the same space, you can start to realize how one thing is the history of a building, the intention of the architect, uh, the, the, the style of architecture that was more important showing or raising this modernity that was part of the colonial agenda or propaganda in terms of civilizing the, the indigenous, but also the, the land or the, the space. But at the same time, uh, it was also interesting to, to uh, understand how this logic of modernization was based on which uh, hierarchy or, you know, what were the rules who were benefiting for, from that. This is, on, uh, I would say, on the historical level on one hand, and on the other hand, there is also the way that from the independence period to now, it's how those areas have been, in a way, occupied, uh, but also not only reoccupied, but how do they, in a way, sort of reproduce the, the colonial system or not? How do they, you know, deal with that uh, reality? I'm interested in the way that you work with these colonial technologies or mechanisms like planning. So, for example, your exhibition Other Tales at the Lundskunsthal in 2020 asserts a decolonial narrative about the history of the Congo against the backdrop of colonial extractive practices. And by that I mean the ways in which you repurpose archival material and portraiture. How do you understand the interconnectedness between the Congo and the West? It's quite complex in one way because... The way that the city, uh, but uh, even the way that the black people coming from uh, uh, villages had to live in what uh, it was called during the colonial period, they were living in those area that w- was called in French centre extra coutumier. So it means modern cities that are not uh, in relation to the traditional law. And in that area, which became later the first indigenous uh, city, there was also a sort of uh, hierarchy between people who could get access to knowledge and who were just workers without any any, uh, level of Western knowledge. And there there was also this hierarchy of the language. You had like French, which was uh, when you become important or when you go to school, then you start to learn French, but also acquiring all the, the, the Christian, uh, but also moral and uh, Western culture, and then you could be uh, called evolué, which could mean uh, civilized uh, in a way. So one thing is that what is interesting in this presentation is uh, the way that in order to, uh, to, to get access to, to knowledge, even now, we always use all those colonial, but, uh, but even uh, Western sciences, uh, which are more important in a way. So it's quite interesting for me to, to kind of bring all those sciences like uh, ethnography mm-hmm. uh, or cartography or urbanism and to bring them into the outward with this idea of not really shifting the meaning, but 
to to confront those uh, ideas that or even those those senses that were used in order to conquer but also to divide but also to create uh, to create this sort of hierarchy still to come I asked Sami Baloji about the interconnectedness of the Democratic Republic of Congo with the global economy. I was also wondering if we could talk a little bit more about extraction and and the place of the Congo in terms of like global economic relations historically. Oh, how does how does your practice begin to situate Congo in the world in relation mm-hmm. to histories of extraction? Being raised in in in, in Katanga, for sure, uh, I knew already from from the time that I was going to school, but even what was saying on TV that Katanga was one of the richest uh, province of uh, the Congo, and that the economy of the entire country was really based on what was produced in Katanga through copper uh, or uranium and, uh, and other mineral resources. So, but then by working with our archives, I also realized uh, that, the, for example, the uranium that was used for the first atomic bomb came from Katanga. And when you start to talk about the, the mineral resources and, and, and the technology, so like, for example, what happened with the uh, atomic bomb, whenever you hear about it, one of the things that uh, it was created in the United States, but you will never think about uh, the fact that the raw material came from, from Katanga. Now, this is one connection that you can, uh, and, uh, I mean, you can uh, start to, to, to think about between Congo and the rest of the world. But then something else is also all the tension during the Cold War, which was, was also based on those raw material. And then looking at, uh, at uh, those nine borders that we had in, and we have in Congo, one is with Angola uh, and Angola and other countries. And uh, Angola and, uh, and some of some others country border to, to Congo were more communists than Congo and then you realize also that Mobutu was really uh, on the American control so it's really it's, uh, uh, interesting and it's through research and learning and digging that I started to really realize the connections that uh, are not told to us. It's for that reason that I started to really work on on this notion of extraction and how to kind of not thinking the extraction as the, the only activity of digging and getting what is under, under the soil, but it's also how not only on the level of mineral resources, but how also even the, the population, but even, I mean, the, the local knowledge, but even the human resources are still used with the same process as digging and, uh, you know, uh, extracting what is under, which is also extracting wo- what it's from the people uh, who are living on, 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 uh, on the land. Specifically, extractive industries raise questions about 
both the entangled history of exploitation of nature and labor in colonial Africa and the development paradigm as a generator of inequality in current global systems. There's something that surfaced more than once in your work. This obviously points to the exploitation of the Katanga region and the planetary deterioration associated with the gouging out of the earth, contaminating water, depleting of oxygen ratios in the air. In what ways does the environmental catastrophe offer an opening to reflect on the spiritual and cultural associations that people in the Katanga region have with their environment? From 90 to 2006, we went through uh, a quite long crisis period. And uh, during those years, one of the things that happened with the local regime, it was to release the, the, the main company of uh, the mining company, which was belonging to, to, the, to the state at that time, and, and the name was Ojekanin. And what happened during the crisis period is that they decided, the government decided to privatize the, the exploitation in Congo. Since then, we have people or even countries from all over the world who can actually afford to get a portion of land and to start to, to explore. So we have Chinese, we have uh, American, Canadian, or Indian, South African like, uh, uh, exploiting uh, mineral resources from private companies to industrial companies. But also uh, another thing is that the, the government decided that people in, in the country could also get a small part of the land where they could start to work and to do the, the exploitation. One other thing is that I was really looking at this informal extraction as a way of surviving for those people. So I was looking at this fragility that was created by the system itself and, and those people living close to the polluted areas and working in a really, really dangerous context and conditions in what were in, during the colonial or even uh, during the dictatorial period. Those areas where the exploitation was going on were mostly industrial areas where you have those the, the holes in, in, uh, dig by those machines that actually you have people like climbing or digging in those which is really really dangerous and there are, there are people dying there without any security uh, social security for me uh, I was interested in, in one way to, to doubt reality and comparing it also with uh, this knowledge, this this idea of again modernity as the the, the government that we have like from 2006 and to 2018 actually there was this idea to kind of we had this propaganda coming from the, the government saying that there will be a revolution of modernity which was an expectation created through this, not contract, but this uh, encounter between China and Congo, where you had the Chinese coming in Congo and proposing to rebuild the infrastructure and in exchange of uh, exploiting mineral resources. We did not only have uh, Chinese exploiting mineral resources, but we started also to have uh, Chinese goods, but uh, Chinese products. And, and in those products, one of the things that was quite interesting, it was also those Chinese posters, that were, you know, part of uh, 
a day life, I would say, or even an intimate life, because you could find those Chinese posters decorating walls of houses, but even like a barbershop. In a way, Chinese posters, which are actually those touristic photographs that people take everywhere and mix it with to Photoshop, with uh, any uh, background and, and wherever, uh, in a way, were sort of traces of what the future, or what the, the revolution of modernity should look like, in a way. So one other thing that I did in, with the, the Colesi series was really to create these two, to, to, to bring close to those two realities. One is how the exploitation itself pollutes the, the environment, but also the, the, this, and, and how those uh, like international contracts displace people in their own lands and put them in a sort of uh, bad con- conditions of living, of working, uh, by at the same time proposing them uh, a future of uh, modernity, which is in a way fake, I would say. And, and this is a way of responding to this idea of the environment and toxicity. There's interesting tension between the assumption that modernity is better, that it's revolutionary, and then the reality of like the material realities that it produced. And I think that this has been a very helpful way to think about the transformation of a space like Kolwezi, because it's very easy to simply say it's the Chinese. But in fact, what it is, is a complete reconfiguration of the global economy and the way that it... Of course, it is out in the landscape and produces new or intense forms of toxicity. In the next segment on ancestor technologies, I speak to Sammy about the relationship between pre-colonial mnemonic devices as a way of thinking about transmission and also mapping the relationship between people, territory and space. Can you speak about archives beyond the colonial or alternative registers for archiving, such as the ways in which you use orality for mapping territory and also Mm -hmm. mnemonic objects? By using photography, I was also aware, but also restricted in terms of how do you represent the pre-colonial periods, which in a way adds also to kind of relates to the local knowledge, but also to not, not just to, to justify, but to, uh, to, to realize that uh, it was also a system, a, a political system with knowledge, with reflections uh, in a way. One other way to work with it, it's, it was to uh, all start to um, traces um, of the pre-colonial time uh, that shows, that still shows us that there were societies uh, well informed and formed, but also a way of communicating and a way of uh, living just as the, the colonial system was also pretending to, to exist and to, to function. And the Kassala, it's, for example, uh, it's a poem performed by uh, people from Kassai, mainly the, 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 the Luba community. Uh, so it's an oral performance uh, that thought, uh, and it's also a kind of a celebration of uh, of the human being. So it starts from the, the name of uh, a human being and start to connect that name with uh, a previous 
people or, or persons who, who had the same name and what they realized in the past and they connect that it's like connecting the, the, the people who had the name with the one who who's been given the name in terms of bringing to his knowledge or her knowledge uh, the significance of uh, having that name as a human being. So this is one thing, but yeah, it's also kind of creating a genealogy of different ancestors and genealogy of the, the person who's getting the name. But also, so you have this genealogies information, you have historical uh, information, but you have also a connection with mythology, cosmogony, but also the lands, uh, I would say, because uh, names or the body that take the name also uh, lives in a space. So the name is also linked to, to, to a territory. And then it becomes more political than just having a name. It's really how you interact also with the other. How do you occupy your space? How, how do you share your space? How do you negotiate the space with what you have? And what it's interesting in that process is it's really also this idea of transmission, which I'm, uh, it's quite interesting because it's the way that you, you have the name and you give it to your son or to your daughter and how she or he will give it to the other. So it's, a, it's all about transmission and what is interesting is that this oral performance uh, actually came from uh, or even the people from Kasai or so the Luba from Kasai uh, uh, historically they came both from the same empire which is the Luba empire uh, based uh, located in, uh, in in Katanga and in Katanga in the Luba empire there was an empire and, and a kingdom so well organized where you had also people who were initiated and they were called the Buji. Uh, so they were close to the, the royal court, and they were the ones who were allowed uh, with a mnemonic board to perform the genealogy of uh, uh, kings in the empire. And the mnemonic board that we were using, it's called uh, Lucasa. Um, even on the scientific level, it's been recognized that uh, uh, one of the, the, the previous maps, uh, as we can consider to have, you know, maps today. Um, in this regard, I can also connect to what Tim Ingold was uh, talking about, previous maps that, you know, uh, travelers were using. Uh, they were mainly drawings, but they were not giving all the information. So the, the those drawings were allowing people to experiment the same uh, parcours, but uh, with this possibility of uh, experiencing the, the journey itself, by, but also kind of decoding information uh, or to interpret uh, information. So coming back to, to Lucasa and this oral uh, performance, I mean, uh, it's... It was really interesting for me to bring them, uh, those two devices together, knowing that there is this notion of uh, a transmission, but there is also uh, this notion of space, of uh, territory, uh, and how to map the, the territory in order to transmit, uh, you know, uh, even through the name or the uh, Lucas devices. So going back to the history, but looking at what it's going on now in, in, uh, in our world. So one of the comparisons that we can make between the Lucasa and the, the modern devices, uh, I would say, for example, let's 
the way that we as modern are connecting with our phone uh, it's it's really in a way of uh, it's a mnemonic way of of remembering like uh, meetings that we have dates uh, or or you know the gps that we're using in order to cross from uh, the point A to point B. Uh, so the phone for us today, it's also, it's, uh, it looks like a, a mnemonic board. It is a mnemonic board mm-hmm. uh, in a way. So I started to, to, to really bring uh, this idea of what does it mean, like coming from Lubumbashi or traveling all over the world. But it's, all, it's all about also this identity, this notion of uh, identity. Um, I was born and raised in Lubumbashi, which was already a modern a colonial place. Uh, I've, I've never been, I would say, initiated to a traditional way of uh, living or, or, or thinking. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I, I mean, living in Lubumbashi, I could connect with people coming from from Kasai or performing the, the Kasala in, during events of like mourning or, or birth. Or, so I'm really connected also to that knowledge. And at the same time, I just realized it's even that it's those spaces are in a way modern, but they are also influenced by traditional knowledge or even pre-colonial knowledge. So it's space where you have both uh, mixing and, and dealing uh, in a way. So from that perspective, I could also start to, to think about how can I express myself through the Casella. to come, we talk about the shift from pre-colonial to decolonial technologies. So what is it that made that moved you into thinking about pre-colonial or decolonial technologies? It's all written from the Western perspective, looking at locals in a way. So you don't need to make an effort. You, you just realize that it's not connected to the reality or to the way that, like my father can speak about, uh, you know, uh, his ancestors or, or the relation with the land. It's not the same as uh, it can be uh, proposed through history or ethnography. And I'm wondering how that relates to the work that you do with copper, for instance. Copper is something that was important in the pre-colonial period. It's also something that was really, really important in the colonial period, but even now. So looking at the, the raw material itself is a sort of trace that can connect all those times. And one other thing that uh, we said also last time is that when we look at those period, we tend always to separate them through the historical perspective. So you have the pre-colonial, the colonial, and the post-colonial. But just as I was talking about the modern city where you have tra- tradition and, and modern, like, you know, like combining or f- fusioning in a way, so it's the same with, with this uh, historical period that we tend to separate them. They are all imbricated in a way. 
and if you start to look at them as imbricated, then things become more fluent than just separate that uh, as the, they tend to present to us. So, so for me, I would say that copper, it's a, it's a medium, it's a, it's a sort of witness of all those economical and, and political and power relationship from the past till now and, and in the future. So it's also what the future, because like when we're talking about the environment or the climate change, and it's all about what we're doing to the earth. So much of our knowledge is trapped in the colonial archive. So to, how does one even begin to develop uh, techniques for accessing other mapping technologies, for instance, and mm-hmm. recognizing mm-hmm. them as, as legitimate? And I think that this is such an important shift precisely in this moment when we're all trying to sort of think about how to decolonize ways of thinking space. There are actually three ways of of defining ourselves when it comes to the, this intellectual level or space or universities or whatever. You, when it comes to African, there are only three ways of defining ourselves. One is colonized and the other is diaspora and, uh, and the other is slave. We only have those three elements. So it's like there's no past, so there is no present, and there's no future. Because all those three words of defining ourselves are squeezed, are constrained. So how do we free ourselves? The African Mobilities podcast series was made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute in partnership with the School of Architecture and Planning and the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witwatersrand, as well as the Andrew Mellon Foundation. 